being prepared. Now, what's it like to be prepared or not prepared? Where's that next slide? There we go. What does it feel like to be prepared? What does it feel like? If you know you're prepared. Organized? Relieved. Relieved, yes. Relieved, what else? Confident, yes. Taking things off the list, you're getting down, getting things done. Isn't it good? What does it feel like to be unprepared, underprepared? What does it feel like? Disaster. <laughs> you speak from experience there, do we, Mike? Chaotic? Stressful. Oh, there we go. Now, there's words of wisdom from Leon right there. Somebody over here. Anxious, was somebody saying? Anxious. High blood pressure. Not a good feeling, right? Not a good feeling. <laughs> who is the most prepared person you know? Like they're just generally prepared in life. Who do you know? My mother. Your mother, Joe? Barry Edwards. Barry Edwards, very prepared person. That's true, yes. Who else do you know is really just a really Okay. Oh, all right. Oh, sorry. That's right. Right. Good. Yeah. Well, make sure to congratulate them. No, I don't think so. <laughs> what were you going to say? Okay. Yes, I know her. Yes. Yes. Of course, the most prepared person I know is my wife. If you know her, she is so prepared. It is astonishing and a little scary to me because that's not the kind of person that I generally am. But many blessings have been brought to my life because my wife is such a prepared person. We like to feel prepared uh, when it's something important is coming up. And Jesus is doing a number of things here. He's preparing his followers for things that are still to come, as he himself, you could say, is preparing to go to the cross. We're on the road to the cross, and beyond that, we're on the road to the resurrection. So we're looking at what it means to be prepared today. Three things we'll see, I hope, and then we'll take communion together and hopefully take that in a way that prepares us for the week ahead. That's the idea. So at the beginning of this uh, section here, we have a, a rather odd thing where the disciples ask Jesus, where do you want us to go and make these preparations for the Passover? And he sends two of them into Jerusalem with a strange stuff to do with a water jar and a kind of a code phrase, maybe. The teacher asks, da 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 make preparations there. They go into the city, they find things, just as Jesus had told them, and they prepare the Passover. So what's going on here? Firstly, I think Jesus, in some senses, is preparing his disciples to be hospitable. He's showing them how to be ready to be hospitable. Special occasions are often marked by special meals, aren't they? I remember uh, the first time I had a surprise birthday party as an adult uh, was my 30th, and I wasn't expecting it. I was living in Wembley at the time, and some, I think Pat and Akin were around at that point, and uh, some of the, what we call family group leaders, leaders of small groups, uh, prepared a surprise birthday party for me in a, uh, I think it was an Indian restaurant in Wembley uh, Triangle, if you know that, that area. And I had no idea it was coming, and Charlie Hines was involved and a few others, uh, Lolo, I think, was involved, and they just took me down there, and we had this 30th birthday party, and it, and it was just, I remember, it was 30, <clears throat> it was over 30 years ago now, um, 
And <clears throat> as I say that, uh, but I, I remember it so well. It was such a, and you've probably had similar occasions like that. And so what's happening here is this is the preparations for the most significant meal Jesus or any of his followers have had in their lives up till that moment. He sends his disciples into Jerusalem, which is where everybody ate the Passover meal in those days. And Jesus has things under control. He's not the victim. He is, in fact, the one who is the master here. The disciples go into the town and they do exactly what he tells them to. They are disciples. They follow his instructions, even in the small things. And they find things just as he told them they would. They live, in that sense, by faith and not by sight, because the instructions probably don't make a lot of sense. And they go there and they prepare. And the preparations would be hard work. You've had the step of faith in just doing what Jesus said and going into the town and finding this person, carrying the jar of water. And then they go, and it says simply that they prepared the Passover, but this was not a small thing. I don't know what the most complicated meal is that you've ever prepared, or perhaps the largest meal for a large number of people. Some of us would feel more comfortable with this. Others of us would freak out if we had to do anything uh, like this. This is serious preparation because this meal is very significant, of course, in Judaism. It would mean roasting the lamb. It would mean providing unleavened bread or biscuits. It would mean finding the bitter herbs and preparing them, pre preparing the special sauce that's involved. It would mean getting the water, getting the wine. And the room itself needed to be prepared properly because you need to recline and you need couches, you need lamps, you need cushioning, you need all kinds of things. And they prepare all of this. And then Jesus turns up, and certainly with the 12, and there may have been more than the 12. It says the 12. It doesn't say the word extras there, and there may have been extras because when later we'll look at there's the discussion about who might betray him. Jesus says, one of you will. And, and they say, well, is, who is it? And he says, it's one of the 12. And by saying one of the 12, it seems to indicate perhaps there were other people in the room. There's a lot of people involved here. Here's a, a, a thought from what I see here before we go on to the next part. Hospitality is something that Jesus is planning for his followers. Hospitality is something that makes makes the ordinary special. Hospitality means going along with Jesus' plans for disrupting our lives in ways that we might not have otherwise chosen. You may have noticed in the Gospels that Jesus offers hospitality and is offered hospitality. And often those circumstances are controversial, difficult, and have surprises in them. And the major surprise is usually that the people invited to share hospitality with Jesus are not the people other people thought he should be inviting to share hospitality with him. The disciples don't like who they have around them a lot of the time. The Pharisees don't approve. The family of Jesus don't even understand. People think he's got the wrong people eating with him and sharing hospitality with him. But here's the thing. If you're a follower of Jesus, you don't get to pick and choose who Jesus brings with him to your meals. When Jesus comes to dinner, he comes with extras, and they're probably not the people you would have invited. And I think this is very significant for us. We get comfortable with the kinds of people that we get comfortable with, 
We like the people we like, and we tend to hang out with the people we like and feel comfortable with, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, but when it becomes exclusively, we just hang out with church people, with religious people, with Christian-type people. We hang out with people who are lower class, middle class, working class. I don't know if they've got any, any aristocracy here, but if it's the aristocracy, whatever kind of class of people, the educated, the less educated, whatever we are, we're naturally comfortable with people that are sim most similar to us in some way or other. But Jesus doesn't hang out with people similar to him. But let's face it, who was similar to Jesus on this earth? It wasn't really anybody exactly like him. And so when we invite Jesus into our lives, we invite his friends and we invite the people that he likes to hang out with, even if we don't. Hospitality. And let me make one more point before I move on. Hospitality is not only about having people in your home. It's really about having people in, in your heart. So you just... You may say, well, this applies to you because you have a house. I have a, 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 a small flat or a little room and I can't be hospitable. Yes, you can. You can be hospitable on the phone. You can be hospitable on a Zoom call. You can be hospitable in a coffee shop. Let's hang out with all kinds of people, not just the ones we feel comfortable with. You know, last Sunday, I was preparing uh, the sermon for last Sunday. I'd, I'd finished it, but I was going over it on Sunday morning before coming here. You may remember it's the earlier part of Mark chapter 14, where the woman pours the expensive perfume on Jesus and people mock her, but Jesus says, no, she's done a beautiful thing uh, to me. Uh, it's, it's wonderful. And, uh, and I talked about generosity. Well, on Sunday morning, as I finished working on the lesson, I put it aside and I had a few minutes and I thought, um, I thought we need to, uh, I need to think about this call to potentially put up Ukrainian refugees. If it works out, they're allowed in the country. Um, Hope Worldwide are planning to organize maybe how we can look after some. And I thought, well, we've got a spare bedroom in our house, we're empty nesters now. Uh, so I, um, I thought about it, and then I went into the kitchen to make a cup of tea, and Penny was there, and she said, we should take somebody, we should volunteer. We, we, you know, and I was like, yeah, we should. That, and it's funny because I had this idea in my hand, it had to be a good idea, but when Penny said, we should sign up, I realized that there was this hesitancy in me. And I was like, yes, we should, it would be the right thing to do. But I like being an empty nester. I mean, some of you, that, that day will come, okay? I know it's not happened for you yet, and there's, there's wonderful things when your children are at home, it's wonderful, but it's also wonderful when they've gone and you've got freedom and you can do whatever you like, and you know, and I like having a, a house just to myself and Penny, and I like having a spare bedroom where we can have guests who can come for a night or two. We can have <laughs> relatives who can come for a few days, maybe, but then they go away again, right? How long might a Ukrainian refugee stay? What if they don't speak English? What if they eat different things than I like? What if they smell funny? I don't know. It's going to disrupt my life. And it's, it's when that rubber hits the road that you really have to think about this. And I'm not saying all of us should volunteer to, to accommodate a refugee. It may not be possible. But just I notice the difference between the idea of it would be a good idea to and then the idea of, oh, let's actually volunteer. That, that's a big gap. Too big a gap. Let's not forget that, <laughs> in a sense, we're all refugees. We're all refugees, and, and we all need God's comfort to be at home with him, and then we're able to be generous to other people. Secondly, let's move on to the next part of the passage. In fact, we're going to momentarily skip the part about Judas. We'll come back to it in a moment, because I want to tie it in together with what happens with Peter at the end of this, this section. So the next part we see is Jesus coming in with the 12. They get uh, ready to eat. And he talks about the one who's going to betray him. We'll come back to it. 
And then it says that he takes the bread and giving thanks, he breaks it and he gives it to the disciples. This is my uh, body. And he takes a cup, he gives thanks, he gives it to them, they drink from it, and he explains what this symbolizes. It's the blood of the covenant. It's poured out for many. In the Aramaic, it would have had more the connotation of all rather than many and not everybody. It would be more all. I say to you, I won't drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There's a slide, I think, uh, if we can just go to that one. So they are now seated around the table. They're about to share this Passover meal. And of course, the Passover meal is uh, a commemoration of God's rescue of God's people from Egypt, and it's highly symbolic. And so we understand that the uh, Last Supper here, the bread and the wine, are meant to be symbolic, not a literal turning into blood and uh, flesh, as uh, some parts of Christendom teach. But as the Passover is symbolic, so is the Lord's Supper in this sense. The bread he shares is broken and shared. The breaking enables the sharing. And so there is some symbolism in the breaking of the bread, perhaps in the breaking of the body of Jesus, but it's more about the sharing, because this is the point. You're sharing in this with me, you're sharing in me. So he breaks it to be able to share. It's passed out. There's another slide there. Um, it's passed out so that they can all share in it. All meals in that culture, and some cultures still today, <coughs> excuse me, when you have other people involved, are either to establish a relationship or to renew it or perpetuate it. The way that Jesus uses the bread and wine here uh, makes it clear that to take of this bread, to eat it together in this fellowship occasion, is to join yourself with Jesus and his fate. We take bread now, we take communion now to remind us that we're joining ourselves with him consciously and his fate, that we die to ourselves so that others may live. And the wine, in the next slide, the wine, more specifically the cup, it's the cup he takes, gives thanks and offers it and they drink, this is a cup which is connected with suffering. If you want to do an interesting Bible study of your own, look up the word cup in the Gospels and you will see that there and in the Old Testament that it is associated with suffering. The cup is, a, is an object that denotes and is associated with suffering. So he's saying as they pass that cup around and they drink from it, he's saying this is the cup of my suffering. It is the blood of the new covenant, but it's also the cup of my suffering. Are you willing to suffer with me? You're my disciples. We're going, you're coming with me to the cross. You're coming with me in a sense to the empty grave, but this is also about the surrender of your will to the will of the Father. One of the reasons why it's so healthy to take communion regularly is it helps remind us of our commitment to a, being a disciple and following Jesus in that way. Symbolically participating in the restoration of Israel and instituting the new covenant. The covenants were always sealed with blood in the Old Testament, Exodus 24, if you want to look it up. And the blood being poured out is symbolic of dying a violent death, which of course Jesus is about to do. He will die as a sacrifice and a sin offering. Isaiah 53 is a good reference if you want to look that up later. So what does this mean for his disciples there present and for us here today? It reminds us that following Jesus means, well, eating that bread, drinking from his cup, and, rem and reminds us that we are following him in his sacrifice. We are following him in his self-giving. We're following him, imitating him, looking for opportunities to die to ourselves so that others may live. We now see, of course, what his disciples could not. 
They didn't really understand the cross still at this point, and they didn't know it was going to end in the empty tomb. We see that. And so whilst they were more, I think, confused, we now look at this with gratitude because it reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, for you and me. And because of that gratitude, we are willing to be generous with our time for God, with our energy for God, with our money, with any resources we have. We're grateful, therefore we're generous, like we talked about last week. And, uh, you know, generosity is, again, one of those things that's easy in concept, but a little more challenging when it comes to the rubber hitting the road. The second thing happened yesterday, uh, last week, on Sunday morning. Not only was I convicted by my wife's eagerness to put somebody up, but also, uh, in, at that morning, I made a donation to the Ukrainian Appeal. First thing in the morning, I thought, I'll do that. I made a donation. I went into the kitchen. This was a separate time in the morning, making another cup of tea. And, uh, and Penny said, we should make a donation. And I said, ah, I've just done it. <laughs> I felt good about myself. How righteous. And she said, I think we should give. And she named an amount. And then I felt convicted because it was 10 times what I'd given. <laughs> 10 times. Not a little bit more, 10 times what I had given. I said, what a good idea. Let me go back and... Um... <laughs> and I wondered, where, where does this uh, generosity come from in my wife? And uh, it's a good thing. And I, here's, here's what I realized afterwards. I thought maybe I just have a, a, a wicked heart and she has a pure heart. And that may be true. But... <laughs> it, it, uh... It's tough being a preacher sometimes. You don't, you don't always get the amens where you hope for them. Um, but I, something else I realized is Penny's father was a refugee in the Second World War. And so she connects with that. Her father was living in Hong Kong with the rest of her family and the family uh, when Hong Kong fell to the Japanese. Her father was captured and her, uh, Penny's grandfather was captured and her grandmother and the three children she had, including her father, got out on pretty much the last ship to leave Hong Kong. Three months later, made it to Australia. Spent a year and a half there, spent a year in South Africa, several months in Egypt, uh, living under tents in the desert, before finally getting back to the United Kingdom, uh, sometime towards the end of the, of the war. That's what shaped her father's life. And of course, that has shaped her life. And so she connects with the idea of being a refugee more directly than I do. Some of us will connect with what's going on here more powerfully than others, perhaps, depending on how much you know the Bible or how much you, what do you think about Jesus and what's going on. But I'd like to encourage us to, to always meditate on and pray about the Lord's Supper here and what Jesus has done for us. It is the, it's the purest way to gain motivation for the Christian life. The cross and the empty tomb are ultimately the most powerful motivation we can have. The last scene is, uh, of course, Judas and Peter. and uh, or, or Peter, rather. But we're going to connect it with the passage about Judas earlier on. Because I think it's worth looking at the, at the two situations together. So we have uh, Judas is predicted as betraying Jesus earlier in the uh, passage here. Although, of course, Judas isn't named. And although he's not named, it's, I'm sure he understood it was all about him. He's not named, and the disciples also don't realize that, Je that Je Jesus knows it is Judas because they're confused. Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? He says, well, it's, it's one of you. And then we have that, 
we have the Lord's Supper sandwiched between that situation and the situation with Peter. And Peter is insistent. Even if all fall away, I will not. Even if all fall away, I will not. He is insistent. He is determined that he is going to do better than anybody else. Betrayal. Betrayal. Betrayal is the worst kind of treachery in the Middle East. If you share food with somebody, that's, that's like we trust each other. As a slide, actually, Psalm 41 is probably in the mind of Jesus as he's saying these words. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. How challenging for Jesus. And he says, all of you will fall away. Let's just talk for a few moments about what that does and does not mean. The word there is uh, from a Greek word, which literally means scandalized, uh, which is rather interesting. And it's the word used in the parable of the sower about those who have shallow roots. Uh, if you have shallow roots, you will fall away because you won't have enough uh, nutrition. So it's the same kind of idea. In the New Testament, there are different words for those who fall away. Uh, there's that phrase, fall away, which is used uh, here in verse uh, 29, but also we have phrases like drift away in Hebrews chapter 2, we have walking away in Galatians, and we have stumbling in various places. Sometimes different Greek words, sometimes the same word. What does this mean and what does it mean, doesn't it mean? In this case, the falling away for Judas is irrevocable. He, his heart is hardened to the point where he cannot come back to God. With the, with the rest of the 12, the other 11, that Jesus talks about here in verse 29, clearly it is not an irrevocable falling away because those 11 do come back. And in fact, in fact with Peter in Luke's gospel, Jesus predicts that Peter will come back in Luke uh, earlier in the gospel. So this is a different, there are different kinds of falling away. It is true that one can lose one's salvation. It's not an easy, pleasant concept to consider. But if Judas, um, one of the 12, can lose it, then I don't see why others are not able to lose their place with God in the end. Jesus says about Judas, it's better if he hadn't been born. In other words, his fate will be worse than that of Jesus, which is quite something. In Hebrews 6, which is on the next slide, we find these words which are challenging and encouraging at the same moment. If you can't read them, it's okay, I'll read it for us. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they're crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain after falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed in the end it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. Things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. I'm not going to unpack all of this today. I only reference it because it comes up in this passage that Jesus says, you will fall away. And we see a difference between the 11 and the 1. 
And we're here uh, as two congregations with very different backgrounds, and one of the um, traditional doctrines of the Baptist church and, um, and associated churches is one of uh, a Calvinist perspective of once saved, always saved. And I only share this to say that according to Hebrews 6, it does seem to me it is possible for one to have salvation and lose it. It says those who share in the Holy Spirit. I, I, how can we share in the Holy Spirit if we're not a true Christian? Yet it is possible to fall away. I would say, I think it's harder to fall away than some people think. I think the grace of God is so wonderful and powerful that it can be quite hard to fall away. Looking at what Peter does in denying Jesus and then he's restored to a full fellowship with Jesus, that's, I mean, that shows us that you can go a long way from God and still uh, come back to full fellowship. But I just say that it is possible. And although I won't say this is a salvation doctrine, and I'm not trying to insert any extra doctrines into, into the sermons more than necessary, since it's in the passage, it seems to be something we might want to consider our own understanding of what it means to be faithful and the potential to lose one's salvation. He says there, even though we speak like this, we are convinced of better things in your case. Preferably, he'd say that about every one of us here. Do we take our salvation seriously? Do we don't earn it and we don't get to a standard where God then accepts us? It's all about God. But nonetheless, we live faithfully. We live as faithfully as we possibly can with the support of one another and God's spirit. And then we need not fear. It's not healthy to go around complacent and it's not healthy to go around like every moment terrified you're suddenly going to be lost. Neither of those extremes are in the scriptures. Neither are, are, are valuable. But we need to avoid complacency as much as we need to avoid over-anxiety about our spiritual state. If that's something you're concerned about, feel, please speak to me. Let's, let's do some, get some scriptures out, pray together. If you feel that you're stuck with your complacency or stuck with over-anxiety, then let's talk about that and let's see what God can do to strengthen us with all that. So I just wanted to mention that because it's part of the passage right here. Judas gives in to his greed. He has a failure of faith and of loyalty to God. It's not a failure of courage, it's a failure of faith. Whereas Peter gives in to his tendency to boasting, he has a failure later of courage, actually not faith. Because Jesus says in Luke, I pray that your faith won't fail. And indeed his faith doesn't, even though his courage does. A couple of applications, and then let's conclude. I believe Jesus is compassionate about our struggles. Although he predicts Peter's denial and the rest of the disciples, the, the apostles here, he doesn't condemn them. He just tells them, I'm warning you, I'm preparing you for failure. And that is what we see here. We've seen Jesus preparing uh, his followers for hospitality. We've seen him preparing them to understand the significance of the cross. And now we're seeing him prepare his disciples for their own failure. Their own failure. And let's face it, you and I, we, um, we struggle with our failures from time to time. Uh, there are consequences to failure, but in the end, Jesus is with us even in our failures. It's important that we're sober about our spiritual strength and that we make a plan that will help us to get stronger than we currently are, trusting that God will bring you through whatever challenges you currently have to your faith. The apostles, think about them. They were stronger after their failure than they were before. They ran away at the cross. But when persecution came in the book of Acts, they stood strong. None of our failures are final. I wonder, is God preparing you for failure or to come out of some spiritual failure? Is God preparing you to be hospitable even with people you don't normally like hanging out with? 
is Jesus preparing you for a deeper understanding of the cross? What is God preparing you for? What is God preparing us for here? Taking the bread and wine helps us be prepared for whatever is coming this week. There's one last slide. When we think of Judas, as we think of this passage, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was prepared. He was prepared to go to the cross. He was prepared as he lived his life so that we could be prepared for the life that we have. As we take bread and wine, this breaking of bread, if you like, and this sharing of the cup symbolically prepares us to be hospitable, to go deeper with God, and to trust that God can bring good out of our failures.